Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Keith Steffen, a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Ann Habel, a retired member of AFSCME 171, University Blue Collar Workers. Today, we take a look at how Wisconsin unions are doing after years of Act 10, discuss demands for a ceasefire from all over the world and from unions here at home, assess the impacts of budget cuts in the UW system, catch up on labor struggles near and far, and much more. And, if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. The University of Wisconsin implemented closure of two-year colleges, job cuts, and program cuts across the system. Frank Emsbach has the story. The Universities of Wisconsin, President Jay Rothman, ordered UW-Milwaukee and UW-Oshkosh to end their classes at Washington County and Fond du Lac campuses, respectively. UW-Green Bay Chancellor announced the end of in-person classes at their campus in Marinette. At the same time, all of the comprehensive colleges, such as Oshkosh, Platteville, or Stevens Point, are implementing faculty and staff cuts and program reductions. UW-Green Bay, Superior Parks are not exempt, as program and staff cuts have been announced and being discussed in these institutions as well. Labor Radio is speaking with John Shelton, American Federation of Teachers, Wisconsin Vice President for Higher Education and President of the Green Bay Faculty Union. We asked John to describe the root cause of the budget cuts. Yeah, the root cause is over a decade of austerity that's been imposed upon us uh, from above. From first, you know, Democrats in 2008, uh, 2009, after economic crisis, but more importantly and more profoundly by Republicans in the legislature who have an ideological agenda against the Wisconsin idea. So when you combine that with the tuition freeze that students have had since 2013 until very recently, it means that we don't have the resources to offer the curriculum and the services to our students that they deserve. What specifically is happening at Green Bay? UW-Green Bay is one of the campuses in the system that's actually growing. And so you would think that given that reality, that we would have plenty of resources to offer students a very broad and diverse program array. Instead, we're having a conversation on our campus about right now about eliminating course offerings, about eliminating program offerings in in, uh, everything from our physics minor to our theater major. And it's pretty frustrating because we're at a point where, you know, we should be expanding offerings and services for students, uh, but we're not because costs of everything from energy to, uh, you know, the salaries of people are going up at the same time that uh, revenue streams are are remaining stagnant. And that's what austerity does, right? It, It starves institutions of resources. The AFT has organizing drives at almost all of the UW institutions. 
What else is the union doing to fight these budget cuts? We've got a couple of different things in the works. I mean, one of them is we've had a group of locals pushing for a meet and confer relationship with administration, uh, which is not collective bargaining. Uh, to my knowledge, every campus that's asked for this, has ha, administration has declined to do so. Uh, so on our campus, we're actually holding a representation vote. It's a non-binding, but it's a demonstration vote that we're going to be holding in February to show campus administration that the vast majority of people who work on our campus want uh, to have uh, union representation, that they want to you know, kind of engage in collective conversations about uh, resources on campus with our administration. Our goal is to get two-thirds of uh, people to support, to show their support for the union. There'll be some physical demonstrations that I think will take place in the UW system. Uh, we're not just going to accept this because our students deserve better. What can our listeners do? I mean, I think, you know, letting uh, legislators and, and UW system leaders know that, like, we want to have the kind of UW system that honors the Wisconsin idea and that our students deserve. And letting faculty and staff and students know that you support us goes a long way to kind of building the morale that we need. That was John Shelton, Vice President for Higher Education of AFT Wisconsin. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Just hours ago, the International Court of Justice released an emergency order in the genocide case brought by South Africa against the state of Israel. In the Madison area, actions calling for an end to the violence in Palestine have been ongoing, with a local labor organization urging action from the AFL-CIO. Greg Jabosky reports. Today, at the end of the business day in the Netherlands and in the morning central time, the International Court of Justice in The Hague issued an emergency ruling that Israel must do all it can to prevent death, destruction, and any acts of genocide in Gaza, which seems to support the substantive claims of genocide made by the Republic of South Africa in its historic case against Israel. However, the court did not demand an immediate end to Israeli hostilities in Gaza and the West Bank, an absence which is seen as a de facto victory for Israel and its key international ally, the United States. Today in Madison, a coalition including the Madison Rafa Sister City Project, World Beyond War and other groups, marched down State Street to the Capitol, demanding a ceasefire and for justice in Palestine. In a separate action, about 50 protesters holding a banner reading from Madison, Wisconsin to Palestine, long live the popular Palestinian resistance, blocked Johnson Street to the State Street crossing for almost two hours from 10.30 into the afternoon. And Madison area organized labor followed its own less public procedures this week. On Monday, at a regular delegates meeting, the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, passed a list of recommendations to be sent to the national AFL-CIO to address the issue of Palestine. Scott McCullough is a member of the Labor Radio Collective. He is also a member of the Wisconsin Professional Employees Association, AFT Local 4848, and a delegate of his union to SCUFFLE, and spoke to Labor Radio on Tuesday. McCulloch listed the recommendations. So we're recommending that the national AFL-CIO call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and other affected areas in Palestine and Israel. We're urging immediate and massive humanitarian aid to Gaza and affected areas of the West Bank 
followed by full reconstruction, recommending the AFL-CIO to use its influence to get the U.S. to suspend further military aid to Israel that prolongs this conflict, and we're recommending that the national AFL-CIO call on the U.S. to use its direct influence and to use its own influence within the United Nations to promote negotiations whose goal would be peace in the region based on the security, self-determination, and economic and social advancement of both Palestinians and Israelis, and then also calling on the, the AFL-CIO to support efforts locally and recommend the national AFL to immediately initiate programs nationally to combat Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. McCulloch described the history of the process, which ended up involving clarification of key AFL-CIO policy points regarding the organization's statements on foreign policy. In October, uh, a group of us in Scuffle put together a resolution and tried to sort of start a discussion within the local labor movement around pushing for a ceasefire in the area, like uh, three months ago now. Before we were able to vote on that, the National AFL-CIO office sent out a letter saying that labor councils for the bylaws were not able to take positions on national and international questions. After that, though, one of the alternate delegates and a member of the local labor movement sent a letter to AFL-CIO national president, Liz Schuler, laying out the 40-year history of sort of how local labor councils, and in particular Scuffle, has worked with the national AFL-CIO to sort of figure out as a combined movement what our position is and what we can do around these questions. It was eventually clarified that local AFL-CIO bodies could make recommendations on foreign policy issues to the national organization, but not issue direct resolutions on these matters, says McCulloch. So again, one of the members in town sent a letter to the national office laying out sort of this 40-year tradition that we've had and got a response from, from President Schuler saying that this, sort of the way it's been working is still how it's working. So we took the resolution that we had put together in October and made sure it conformed to those standards and then brought it to the executive board of Scuffle, brought it to the delegates meeting yesterday, at which point the resolution passed. One point generated the most discussion, said McCulloch. The biggest debate was around the question of U.S military aid to Israel. To recommend the national AFL-CIO to use its influence to get the U.S. to suspend further military aid to Israel that prolongs this conflict. Uh, and so the discussion around that point was, I think, unsurprisingly, sort of the, the biggest question, I think. McCullough says that a key impetus to coming up with these recommendations were calls for international labor solidarity around Palestine. There's explicit calls from Palestinian trade unions, many of whom are in sibling organizations to our unions who are asking us to do these things, who are asking American trade unions to call for ceasefires, to call for halting of military aid to Israel. And so it's also taking seriously those calls that we're getting from working people across the planet, and in particular in Palestine. There was Scott McCullough of AFT Local 4848 and a delegate to Scuffle. Scuffle's recommendations on any AFL-CIO stance on Palestine will be sent to the National, where any official organizational action can be taken. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. We're 
workers and their unions are on the march in Wisconsin. Frank Emspach has the story. It has been 12 years since Republican Governor Scott Walker organized the destruction of public sector unions in Wisconsin with the passage of Act 10. Nonetheless, the Wisconsin trade union movement has survived and is now growing. On January 24th, the Capital Times reported that Wisconsin's union workforce grew at the fastest rate in more than 30 years. According to the article, using numbers derived from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the number of union workers rose by 18,000, or 9.6%. Union membership had been declining each year from a high point of 20% in 1989 to just 7.4% last year. The median union worker earns $173 more per week than the median non-union worker, a difference of about 16%. This huge wage differential in favor of union workers indicates just how important union membership is for every worker. Here in Madison, we can see the increasing activity of our union movement. Workers are organizing at Starbucks and sourdough. Nurses are conducting a vigorous organizing campaign at the UW Hospital as they seek to win their union back. Union members have been willing to strike to win decent conditions at Tracti and CUNA, now True Stage. Unions are also rebuilding their capacity. The South Central Federation of Labor is reestablishing their member education campaign. The Democratic Social of America is partnering with the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee to offer classes to activists interested in organizing. Unions are also engaging the public in efforts to win decent contracts. To that end, the Service Employees Union is hosting an art build and potluck this Saturday, January 27th from 1 to 5 p.m. at the Labor Temple, 1602 South Park Street in Madison. This will be an exciting time to meet fellow service and support members and nurse members and potential members that work at Meritor. Fellow union and community supporters are invited. The union notes that they are about to enter into a service and support unit bargaining with Meritor Hospital on February 14th. The union expects the event will be a unique opportunity to prepare for the next phase of contract campaign and have some fun. SEIU urges supporters to stop by for a short time or the entire afternoon for this family-friendly event. Feel free to bring a dish to pass, but the union will also provide some food and non-alcoholic beverages. I am Frank Emsmack, reporting for Madison Labor Radio. America's Credit Union has informed the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development that it will lay off 25 to 30 percent of its 320 employees in March, including about 38 in Wisconsin. The Madison-based credit union, formerly known as CUNA, is now called America's Credit Unions as a result of a recent merger with the National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions. Sources indicate that the layoffs are the result of that merger. Employees who are members of the Office and Professional Employees International Local 3-9 have bumping rights under the collective bargaining agreement with the company. A day-long strike at the country's largest public university system has yielded a tentative agreement for faculty and staff. Labor Radio has more on the proposal. Faculty and staff at California State University, the country's largest four-year public university system, are weighing a tentative agreement proposed by university administration after a one-day strike ended earlier this week. 
29,000 of the university's employees across 23 campuses are represented by the California Faculty Association, all of whom walked off the job Monday morning. The strike was timed to coincide with the start of the spring semester's classes, which began earlier this week. The strike was initially intended to last through the end of today, but an abrupt announcement of a deal by the union on Monday evening included a cancellation of the rest of the strike. Union leadership are campaigning hard for approval of the agreement, which includes an immediate 5% raise for all members and an increase to the salary floor for lecturers, steps that they say are major leaps forward for the lowest paid among the union's membership. Some faculty, however, were hopeful that the full-week strike would further improve the terms of a deal and were blindsided by the union's announcement after just one day on the picket line. Some pointed out that the proposed 10% general raise over two years, of which half is conditioned on state funding, fell well short of the 12% that was initially put forward by the union. Others raised concern that the agreement fails to address student-to-faculty ratios. Emily Burquist Sewell, a 16-year professor at Cal State University at Long Beach, told the Los Angeles Times that she was, quote, disappointed with the tentative agreement, adding, quote, we put forth so much effort and got so much support from our students, our communities, and our local union chapters to disrupt the first day of classes, disrupt our lives, and potentially our pay. My personal preference, of course, would have been to get the full amount that we were asking for. Another faculty member took to social media saying that they felt, quote, betrayed by the cancellation. The union has not yet announced the date of a vote on the tentative agreement, but they said that any vote would eventually take place electronically. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. Now, here's the latest on a recent merger from Microsoft's video gaming division. Microsoft announced this week that they are laying off approximately 1,900 workers from their video gaming division, which is about 9% of the 22,000 workers currently employed. This comes as Microsoft finalized in October its acquisition of gaming company Activision Blizzard for $68.7 billion, an acquisition that took 20 months to sort through with regulators in the U.S. and the U.K. Workers at Raven Software in Middleton, owned by Activision Blizzard and thus now Microsoft, and represented by the Communication Workers of America, will not be included in the layoffs, according to a statement by the CWA. The CWA statement goes on to say that, quote, By coming together and exercising their right to organize, workers in the video game industry can make layoff protections standard practice for all workers. We will continue to support workers at Microsoft and across the video game industry who want to have a union voice on the job, end quote. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Scott McCullough. Long touted as the model for so-called benevolent employers, grocery wholesaler Costco showed that the title has its limits. Labor Radio has a report on a recent union election at one of the store's locations. Late in December, store employees at a Costco wholesale in Norfolk, Virginia, voted to join Teamsters Local 822. The store in Norfolk is not the first Costco location to win union representation. Workers in 40 California stores, for example, are represented by the Teamsters, and many unionized locations that were initially owned by Wholesaler Price Club carried over bargaining representatives when the two companies merged in 1993. Soon after this union's win, though, a letter from Costco's corporate leadership appeared posted in break rooms across the country and in the inboxes of anyone with a Costco email. Quote, at Costco, we take great pride in our relationships with each other, the letter read. 
quote, we're not anti-union, but our core value of taking care of our employees has never been the result of any union. Fernando Perez, a cashier at the Norfolk location, told Jacobin reporter Luis Feliz Leon that Costco's culture of taking care of employees has changed over his nine years of employment, remarking, quote, management seemed like they were harder to talk to since the beginning of COVID, and we didn't feel like we were as appreciated as in the past. They just keep moving the goalposts to make sure that there are always people, five to ten employees, that are under a new line so that they can write them up to get demoted, to cut their pay. The reaction to workers' victory could be read as a stark reminder of the limits of the benevolent employer, one who compensates employees above market rates, but still downplays the importance of workplace democracy. Perez explained to Felice Leon that for an organization such as Costco, which frequently touts its socially responsible corporate governance, the internal contradiction starts to unravel when workers assert their rights. Quote, they're still trying to hold on to the guys that they are a good company, so you have to read through it. The letter was more of a chastising letter to all other buildings. Norfolk is the bad egg. Don't follow them. We're going to fix it. Information used in this report was sourced from an interview conducted by Luis Felice Leon for Jacobin Magazine. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hangerup. Here is the latest on Wisconsin state legislative maps. Since the Supreme Court of Wisconsin ruled Wisconsin's current legislative maps unconstitutional on December 22, 2023, seven maps were submitted for consideration by the January 12th deadline. Those submitting prospective maps include the plaintiffs represented by Law Forward, Governor Evers, a group of Democratic state senators, Republican state legislators, and a group of voters represented by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. All map contributors had until January 22nd to evaluate the seven proposed maps. The maps are now in the hands of the two outside consultants hired by the state to assess each of the maps using the requirements set forth by the Wisconsin Supreme Court justices. If none of the submitted maps meet the requirements, the consultants can draft their own proposed maps. Ultimately, the justices will select which maps will be used for future elections. Maps must be in place by March 15th to meet a deadline set forth by the Wisconsin Elections Commission for elections taking place this year. There was an interruption in this process this week when Republican senators, on very short notice, passed a modified version of Governor Evers' map that was then taken up and passed by the State Assembly on Wednesday. The governor has said that he will veto this bill and allow the process to be resolved through the State Supreme Court. Challengers to the existing maps believe that less partisan maps will make elections more competitive and will result in our elected officials passing legislation that is closer to what the people of Wisconsin want. The Medicaid expansion, clean water and air, reproductive rights, well-funded public schools, and yes, a fair legislative map drawing process. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio.
The National Farmers Union has been advocating for family farm issues for more than 120 years. The Wisconsin Farmers Union has existed for more than 90 years. Here's a brief history. The National Farmers Union, NFU, was founded in 1902 in Texas as the Farmers Educational Cooperative Union of America. Its core principles are education of members and others, cooperation, and lobbying for legislation. It has more than 200,000 family farm members. The early NFU advocated for cooperative rights, fair market access, direct election of senators, and voting rights for women. It works for the economic benefit of family farmers, fishers, ranchers, and rural communities by promoting policies developed by the membership and democratically adopted as official policy at its national conventions. NFU efforts have resulted in many favorable national programs. They achieved the Federal Farm Loan Act, which established 12 federal land banks. In 1931, it established the Farmers Union Central Exchange, which later became Senex Harvest States, a large agricultural and marketing cooperative the Soil Conservation Service, the Production Marketing Administration, the Commodity Credit Corporation, the Farm Credit Administration, and the Rural Electrification Administration were additional institutions promoted by the NFU and established by the federal government. During the 1940s, the NFU campaigned to make school lunches permanent. It was a founding member of the Cooperative for American Remittances to Europe, the CARE program after World War II. During the 1970s, the NFU helped to develop rural health systems and was also included as part of the World Hunger Action Council. In 1980, the organization advocated for the implementation of a capital gains tax on foreign owners of U.S. farmland. In 1982, the NFU helped to get part of the military budget shifted to humanitarian food aid using commodity surpluses from the U.S. In 1990, the organization pushed for increased regulation of organic crops, including the creation of a national organic production standard. In 2002, NFU was part of a coalition of 165 farm and consumer groups that helped establish mandatory country of origin labeling. Wisconsin is one of 33 states that have state NFU organizations. It was established in 1930 after several years of organizing. The first local started in Elk Mound in 1926. The Wisconsin Farmers Union Board first met in Chippewa Falls and its state headquarters are still there. The State Farmers Union is further divided into regional district chapters. The state organization helps to advocate for favorable policies in the state legislature and provides education for youth, adult members, and the public. I'm Keith Steffen for Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Ann Habel. Thanks to editor Frank Emsbach, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jabosky, Sean Hagrup, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, engagement editor Alice Herman, and all our readers and all the members of IBEW Local 2304 
WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Keith Steffen. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark.